Welcome to the Foundations of Learning podcast, where we believe every child deserves a tailored and enriching educational experience. By embracing diverse perspectives and sharing practical tips, I hope to inspire you to actively participate in your child's learning journey, fostering a love for knowledge and nurturing the skills necessary for success in a rapidly changing world. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I am going to talk about the science of reading today. I thought it was only fitting because last time I talked about the science of math and this time I'm going to talk about the science of reading. And what's really funny about both of these is that really it's just a um, systematic and explicit way to go about teaching math and reading. So they're very similar in the fact that we do have research on how our brains learn to read. We don't have as much research as far as like how our brains learn math, but we also know now like the exact systematic approach that we should take and the fact that our brains do use a lot of like hands-on and building to learn things. So anywho, we're going to talk about the science of reading today. Um, I'm going to go through um, the stepping stones or the building blocks that your child needs to know or be able to do um, to be a fluent reader and writer. And then I'm also going to talk about um, how our nation is doing and just kind of talk about what you can do and give you some action action steps so that you can be successful in teaching your child to read and write. Or if they're struggling, to give you some tips that you can implement at home or even to look at like what skills did my child still need and give you more information because knowledge is power, right? All right, so first of all, let's talk about what is the science of reading? The science of reading is research rooted in neuroscience, cognitive development, psychology, and linguistics. So it's kind of like a mixed pot of everything, which is amazing because we should be looking at students as a whole person, right? Like not just different aspects, but in a whole aspect. So this research was conducted over the last five decades across the world. So they looked at different Um, people's brains in different languages in different um, countries and it ended up being all the same no matter what I mean there are um, like differences in some of our languages like as far as like Chinese goes like they do use symbols that represent meaning we don't really do that anywho so it is a little bit different there but anywho um, it was done to collect evidence to inform how proficient reading and writing develop why some have difficulty and how we can most effectively teach and therefore improve students outcomes through prevention and intervention for reading difficulties so it really was done to figure out how do kids that have like oral language deficiencies or dyslexia um, you know these difficulties that we see within reading and how can we effectively teach them and what they found was why are we not doing this with all kids because we were using for a very long time which there's a lot of history on that I'm not going to go into it a bit um, with whole word reading and like a phonics approach or balanced literacy and to be honest with you most of it is crap because most of it you're either memorizing words, which is not how we learn to read. They have literal brain research on the fact that that's not how we learn. Um, Or we were teaching guessing or just terrible, terrible ways to teach someone a skill. Because first of all, if you're not good at memorizing, you're screwed. Second of all, if you are told to guess, you're probably going to give up pretty quickly because who wants to play the guessing game and then be graded on it? That's no fun, not no fun at all. So 
there was a lot going on there. So this is why our nation sucks so far. So I'm going to give you a statistic. 54% of adults have a literacy below a sixth grade level. I want you to go and Google sixth grade reading level test and be in shock that 54% of adults can't read that. That is a problem. All right. So 21% of Americans 18 and older are illiterate in 2022, which means they cannot read, which means that there is a lot of Americans out there that cannot read some medical documents and even more than that. Like it's, it's pretty wild because when I started this business, it told me that I should not write above a sixth to an eighth grade level on my blog posts. That's, that's pretty wild, guys. It really is. All right, so let's keep going. Low literacy rates end up costing Americans up to $2.2 trillion every year. That is crazy. And the reason being is because if you are illiterate, you are more likely to be on welfare and also to be incarcerated. So that's a scary statistic. Let me give you a couple more in case you weren't like shook to your core already. 85% of all juveniles who interface with the juvenile court systems are function functionally low literate. Oof. Two-thirds of students who cannot read proficiently by the end of the fourth grade will end up in jail or on welfare. So how are we doing? How are our kiddos doing? Are they going to end up in juven juvenile um, courts? Are they going to end up in jail or on welfare? Well, let's see. Throughout the U.S., there were 66% of children in the fourth grade that couldn't read well in 2013, but we do have recent data for 2022. And it's the exact same. 66% of children in fourth grade are not reading on grade level. 69% of eighth graders not reading on grade level. So you've heard COVID. It was the COVID. No, what happened is that we had a pandemic. Parents were then put in charge of their child's education. And then they said, what the heck is going on here? They were watching their children be taught and they were like, uh... Huh? So then they started doing more research and they were like, holy crap, our kids can't read. Why can't they read? What is going on? COVID just opened our eyes, but they've always sucked. It's always sucked because I can tell you as a teacher that went through college training, I have a certification in teaching. Like I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. Um, I am a certified teacher in my state that I live in and they did not teach me best practices to teach kids to read. I was freaking lost for a lot of years until I learned about the science of reading. And then all of a sudden, my kids were starting to learn to read. I was like, whoa, crazy. What would you know? So it's not really a shock to me that we can't read because anywho. All right, let's keep on going. So let's talk about, first of all, we need to know what is happening in our brains and why learning to read can be so difficult for so many people. So the way that we read and write today has only been around for 200 years. That is not very long. So when I say that you are literally rewiring your child's brain to learn to read, I'm not joking. Like that is an actual fact is that we have to rewire our brains because our brains, they're wired to speak. They're wired to listen. They're wired to tell stories. 
but the way that we actually communicate that in written form is not normal for our brains. So we have gone through an evolution in the way that we communicate our stories or our words in written form. So the very first thing that we did, which you probably know this, is through pictographs, right? We would use pictures to represent a meaning. Then we went to logographs. So this is a symbol representing a meaning. So we're not using pictures. It's some sort of symbol that represents something. Then we went to syllabic symbols. So this is when the symbols actually represent a syllable. So you can put those um, symbols together and make a new word, right? With those syllables. And then we went to the alphabetic symbols, which is what we deal with today, which that has also shifted. Um, we did have like an alphabetic um, system that doesn't look exactly like how ours was, but now we've progressed to where we are today. Um, and that's just using individual letters that represent a sound. We put those together to create a word that now has meaning. And you're probably thinking like, what the heck? Why wouldn't we have stuck with like the pictures and the meanings and the logographs? Well, actually learning that is a hundred times harder than learning how to read and write the way we do today, because you had to have a lot of training in understanding what the symbols were, what they represented, and then you had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of symbols that you had to memorize to know what it said. So, and the hard thing is, is that there's like certain symbols that could have like multiple meanings and things like that, which yes, we have that in the English language, right? We have homographs and homophones and things like that. So yes, it is the same type of deal, but different because when we actually look at the way that our brains learn to read, it's actually easier. I know, I know to learn English the way that we have it today, <laughs> which most people be like, you are a liar because I have seen the English language and it's kooky and I get it. It is kind of kooky because we do pull from three different languages. We pull from Anglo-Saxon, Greek and Latin, but also we will pull words like German words and French words. And then that creates even more confusion because the way that they pronounce sounds or spellings is completely different than the way that we do. So it causes confusion and I get it. But for the most part, did you know that only 4% of English words are actually irregular? Yeah, only 4%. So if we know the patterns, which it's not as many as if you were to just do like all of these symbols and the meanings, it's not as many as you may think. It's really not. And it seems overwhelming when you look at it like as a whole, but if you break it down into a systematic approach, it's actually not that complicated because you just do it piece by piece by piece by piece, right? Just as learning anything new. Like if I was to think about learning how to play a violin, for example, like it sounds very overwhelming to me, but if somebody broke it down to very simple things, like first we need to know how to read music. So we're going to learn how to read music. Now you need to know what each string means and what, you know, that represents in the, the music or whatever. I am not a musical person. So basically talking nonsense here, but if they broke it into smaller pieces, I could successfully learn how to play the violin. And if somebody just handed me a violin and said, here you go, it's not going to go very well, right? So like I had said, learning to read and write the way that we are today is new to humans. It's not something that our brains are wired to do. So when we're looking at the parts of the brain, the left side of the brain is the part that is responsible for language, reading, writing. That's what the left side of your brain is for. 
among other things, but we're just going to go with that for right now. Okay. So we're talking about pronunciation and articulation. This is how we are saying our sounds. This is happening within a part of our frontal lobe. Then you have language comprehension. So this is understanding the, um, the vocabulary, right? Knowing the meanings of words. This is happening in the front part of our temporal lobe. Then you have phoneme analysis or phoneme grapheme association. So this is where we're taking these sounds that we have in our language and corresponding them to a spelling pattern. That is like the top of your temporal lobe. And then you have the visual word form area, which is like where we hold all of these words that eventually turn into sight words. That's where we hold them. Um, and that is going to be in the bottom part of our temporal lobe. So it's kind of interesting to know like where these things are happening because if you were to put a kid's brain that's learning to read under, you know, imaging so we could see um, where parts of the brain are lighting up, you're going to see those parts of those bra the brain lighting up if you are teaching reading correctly. If you are not or they have difficulties in learning to read, those parts are not going to be lighting up like they should. So let's go over like the building blocks of the science of reading, what they are, and how you can be successful in helping your child in those things. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is early literacy skills. So the very first thing is oral language or vocabulary development. Y'all, if your child does not have a vocabulary, they cannot read and write. That's just it. That's just how it is. And I had a lot of first graders that would come in that had really low oral vocabulary and it was really hard for them to learn to read and write because their oral language was so low. So when we're talking about oral language, obviously the progression, I am not a speech pathologist in any way, shape or form, but as far as like a progression goes is like your child's going to start mimicking sounds, right? They start making weird sounds like buh, 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 buh as a baby, right? Then they move into words. So now it's like, okay, I can say the word milk maybe not correctly because they are still working on the pronunciation right so you might have them saying the words not very correct that's why like toddlers it's like you listen to a toddler speak that you haven't met before and you're like I can't understand your language and the mom knows exactly what he's saying or whatever right because they know how they're pronunciating sounds but they're using words they're trying to communicate their thoughts their needs things like that and then you start to move into um, now we're not just saying a word. Now we're saying sentences and then our vocabulary is growing even more. And now we have a more broadened vocabulary. But all of this doesn't just happen. It is something that you have to work with. I, I think about um, that study where they had these orphans in an orphanage. I want to say it was in Russia. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was Russia. And what they did is they just left these orphans just they're not teaching them anything, like didn't speak to them, treated them horribly. And what they found is like these 16 year olds couldn't talk. They couldn't, their gross motor skills, their fine motor skills were not fully developed. They were not um, trained as far as like potty trained go. Like they were literally like wearing diapers, like it's so important that you're talking with your child, that you are, um, you know, playing mimicking games where they're copying you, that you are listening to a bunch of stories to broaden their vocabulary, um, and that you're using fancy words throughout the day, and so on. You want them to be talking. You want to listen to them when they talk and encourage them to speak. If your child has a language delay, 
get with a speech pathologist and try to get that taken care of as early as you can. But because the earlier that we get an intervention in place, the better off they will be. So the next thing we're going to talk about is concepts of print. So concepts of print is where I'm looking at the cover of the book, the back of the book. I'm understanding that we read from left to right. I'm understanding the um, direction that I flip the pages. Um, I'm understanding that um, this is a word and I know it's a word because I have spaces between it. This is understanding what an illustrator and an author is, right? All of that good stuff in concepts of print. Then we have phonological awareness, which I'm going to go into detail on in itself. So we're going to talk about that, but phonological awareness, memory. So even though we are not memorizing specific words, we are also having to memorize spelling patterns, right? We have to understand the meanings of prefixes and suffixes or root words or base words to know meaning of a word. We have to remember our alphabet. Like there's so much that they do still have to essentially memorize. Um, and so working on memory, you could do like different patterns where you create a pattern and then they have to try to recreate it. Or you do like clapping things where you do a specific pattern in clapping and they have to try to remember that, right? Or you do like a um, thing where you do a specific dance and then they have to copy that dance. There's a lot of things that you can do to practice memory, even like those memory games where they have to, you know, remember where those play, those cards were placed. Um, and then as far as attention goes, they have to learn how to be able to sit down not really because you can incorporate play, but they do have to have attention, right? They have to have a little bit of that. So like working on puzzles and things like that will help with that. Um, and then fine motor skill development. So we're talking about, um, this is for more like when we get to writing. So you can have them working with Play-Doh, with clay, dressing dolls, working on buttons, zipping up their own jacket, tying their shoes. Those are all great skills that they need to know how to do that will also work with their fine motor skills. Um, you can also get like string and have them put like beads on string. Um, even if you're baking, like having them help you with the dough, like all of that is going to work on their fine motor skills so that we can go into writing. So let's talk about phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. With phonemic, phonological awareness, it's an umbrella term because you have different parts of the um, phonological awareness, which is going to be the easiest early skills. And then you have under that phonemic awareness, which is breaking the sounds into more complex um, parts. So what is phonological awareness? Phonological awareness is the ability to manipulate sounds in words. So this is completely auditory. You are not using any sort of words or letters, just doing this out loud. So phonological awareness, we have sentence segmentation, which is just counting how many words in a sentence. You have alliteration, which is beginning sound. So the word is bat, beginning sound is b. You have rhyming, which is like ham and bam, right? We all know what rhyming is. And then you have syllable segmentation. This is the ability to identify how many vowels or vowel sounds are in a word. Um, with phonological awareness, um, I do have a video that goes over on YouTube that goes over all of these skills, how to implement them. So if you want to check that out, go and check out that YouTube video. Um, and then we're going to go into phonemic awareness. So phonemic awareness is the ability to recognize and manipulate individual sounds and words. Now you have different parts. You have segmenting phonemes. So this is me saying the word is bat. Can you tell me the sounds? They say b at. Then I have blending, which is where I would say the sounds are b at. What's the word? They say bat. You have isolating phonemes. So now we're looking at each part of the word. So if I said, tell me the first sound in bat, they would have to say b. Middle sound in bat, a. Last sound in bat, 
right? So now I'm just asking for different parts of the sounds. And then you have adding phonemes. So this is where, let's say I have the word at, and I want them to add b to the beginning. So now it's bat, right? Or you could even do this to the end. So you could say the word is bat, add s to the end, and they say bats. Then you have deleting phonemes. So I would say the word is bat, take out b, what's left, they say at, right? So there's different pieces, but there's a couple that I would say are the most important for learning to read and write. And the most important one I would say is sentence segmentation. They have to be able to count words because when they're writing, I will get to that later on, but when they are writing, it's important in the beginning that they know how to count their words and draw lines so that they can represent where those words go. And then also syllable segmentation. It is important that they know how to do this because um, when we are reading multisyllabic words, they need to be able to break it up into syllables. It makes it easier to decode it. And then when they're writing, we don't want to just break it up into individual sounds. Like if I'm writing magnetic, I don't want to go m, ag, n, et, ik. It's, there's so many sounds and it gets really confusing. So if you can break it up into their syllables, mag, net, ik, and then have them break it up. So mag, okay, what are the sounds? M, ag, mag, okay, next one. Mag, net, okay, net, n, et, and then having them write net, mag, net, Ick. Okay, now we're writing ick, right? So having them break that apart is so much easier. One tip I will give with syllables because funny story, when I was a kindergarten teacher, um, well, I was student teaching in a kindergarten class. Um, the teacher was having them work on syllables, which go this teacher. She was a way ahead of her time and our kids were excelling like crazy. No, you know, anyways. So I was student teaching and I honestly didn't know what a syllable was. Like I remember learning clapping in school. Like I remember learning about syllables and we'd like clap our syllables, but I never actually understood when the syllable was. So this is super important because syllables can get confusing when you have um, like R controlled vowels, that's a syllable. And it's really hard to know that it is because it's not saying A, E, I, O, or U. It's not saying it's short sound, right? So, or, you know, like in consonant L-E words, like stumble, that ol part, that bowl part, whatever, is a syllable. It's not saying a vowel sound, but it has a vowel, so it counts as a syllable. So here's a tip. If you're working on syllables, humming it, hmm, hmm, I just said stumble, two syllables, hmm, hmm, or you can put your hand under your um, chin, and every time that your chin drops is a syllable, stumble. This will help your kids to break it up because... They need to know when the syllable is and they're not just like willy-nilly clapping, right? All right, so that's phonological awareness. Let's go into phonics. So with phonics, um, I would say that we need to do it in a systematic approach first off and then second, it off, second off, phonics is the, um, now we're putting what those sounds are and placing them with the actual spelling. So now, instead of just saying sounds, now we're going to look at the alphabet, right? What are the sounds of these letters? What are the sounds of these spelling patterns? And now we're, we're making that to make words and actually reading and spelling with those words. So I would say, like I said, it needs to be a systematic approach. I would start off with closed syllables. What does that mean? It just means that the consonant is closing in the vowel, so it says it's short sound. But in the beginning, after they know their letter sounds, I would then go to two letter sounds or two letter words to read. So now we're um, going to do words like am or at or ip, and they don't have to be real words, but I would start with the vowel first with a consonant following and having them segment the sounds and then blend it back together. And then you can add more sounds. So now we're gonna do like, um, 
uh, Sam, right? Sam, Sam. Then I'm going to add maybe another sound and I'm going to do slam. So slam or slam, slam, right? So you're adding more and more sounds that way. Then I would go to working on and just explaining open syllables. Open syllables are words like he, go, no, words like that. It ends in a vowel, so it says its name. This is going to be more important when they're reading multisyllabic words because there's not very many words that will just end in a vowel, but it's good for them to know that that is what an open syllable is when they go to read something like music so that they can break it into their syllables and know this first syllable is an open syllable. That's why the U is saying U. Okay, so that's why it's important to do that. Then I would move to diagraphs, which is like T-H-S-H-W-H, then silent E, which is words like bike, hike, make, so on. Vowel teams, so like E-A, O-A, things like that. Then I would go to diphthongs, which is things like O-W saying ow or O-U um, in soup saying ooh, right? So there's different ones with that. And then our controlled vowels, this is going to be like A-R-O-R-U-R um, and that. And then I would go to consonant L-E. So consonant L-E, again, I was just talking about where, you know, you're going to have that part, which is like bull, goal, toll. That is a part of the syllable. That E is slightly changing that, how we produce that L sound. Um, and it's silent. So that is a part of a syllable and understanding how to break that apart. I know I'm going through this so fast, but I really just wanted to give you like a nitty gritty version of what is the science of reading and what are the parts of it. And if you want more detailed information, I actually do have a paid course um, that I have out right now that goes over all of the parts of the science of reading, a simplified version for you as the parent so that you can implement this at home and support them if they are in school so you can support them at home or if you're homeschooling and you want to learn more about how kids learn to read so you can appropriately choose curriculums um, and then just make sure that you're using best practices. How, whatever it is, I made it simplified for you um, and it is actually 75% off right now. So it's usually $1.99. You can get it for like 49.75 or something like that right now um, and it's only till the end of February so I would get on that if you want that another perk you get resources to get you started and I also will mentor you so you get to talk to me weekly we will go through if you have any questions um, or if you want some tips and tricks like all of that so if you want to check that out, I would check it out. I also have a free course right now that's the five foundations and it goes through the five foundations that your child needs to be successful in reading and writing. So if you want a freebie just to take a look at how my courses work, check that out as well. All right, so um, once we get past phonics and we're past the decoding part of it where we are actually just like segmenting sounds and blending them back together, um, one thing I do want to tell you with phonics is every time you teach a pattern, they need to read with it and spell with it. This is where I found the biggest bang for my buck with my students is I would teach the patterns because I kind of went through this like progression where first of all, I was using the worst practices. They were memorizing, they were guessing, like it was just crap stuff that I was doing, like seriously terrible. That's what I was taught. So that's what I did. But once I started learning more about the science of reading, I started to make sure that my students were understanding patterns and reading with those patterns. But the one thing I wasn't having them do was spell with them. And it was not correlating. One thing you need to know, writing and spelling are correlated. You have to do both. So 
if you teach a pattern, like let's say I'm teaching EA and it's saying E, I'm going to have them read words with EA. I'm going to have them spell words with EA and they're going to read passages with EA. Everything we're doing is practicing with that pattern. And when I started integrating that spelling piece into it, my kids soared. Like I have never seen the growth that I have seen with those students. Like I would get like 50% growth in in this topic of like reading whole words or I'd get 30 some percent um, growth in their fluency and their accuracy. Like it was insane growth that I had never seen before. So make sure you're spelling and reading with those phonics patterns. But once we get past that, now we're getting into fluency. So what the heck is fluency? It is not just that we just can, you know, read a passage super easy. That That's a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. So this is now from where we're going from needing to decode all the words in a text to now having them turned into sight words. That means that we've spelt with them and read with them enough that now we don't have to decode them. We just know the word instantly, which is what a fluent reader does, right? You don't sit there and sound out words. You just read it. So Not only does it have to do with the ease that we read something, it also has to do with accuracy. So how accurate are we actually at reading those words has to do with rate. So that really has to do with how fast we're reading because kids will oftentimes start to read really, really fast and then it messes with their accuracy and they have to know that we talk or we read like we talk. Now there is something to be said about being able to skim something and get like the main idea of it. But in the beginning, we don't want kids to do that. We want them to be able to read the words accurately and read at a speed that will actually help them in comprehension. Because I have heard kids that read fast and they still, you know, can comprehend. They're really good skimmers. They can get the gist, right, really well, but their accuracy sucks. And then that's like, for me as a teacher, I'm like, well, can they do it or can they not do it? So really talking about, hey, when we read, we're going to read like we talk. We're not going to do it super fast. And if you've listened to me enough, I talk really fast and I do read really fast. So some kids, that's fine. If it's not hindering their accuracy, let them read or their comprehension, let them read at the speed. But that's kind of a general rule of thumb. And then we have expressions. So this is how that we understand that our the way that we speak changes with question marks, with exclamation marks, with periods, right? We understand that to make something more interesting, we need to read with expression. If your child hates you reading to them, try to get really silly with it. You have to be like that character. When I would read the um, three little pigs to them, I had a voice for the wolf. I had a voice for each of the pigs and the kids were so much more engaged. So your kid does not love you reading aloud to them, try to like juice it up a little bit, give it some character. Okay. All right. So the next thing we're going to talk about is vocabulary. So yes, we already talked about vocabulary in an oral sense, right? Can they um, speak eloquently? Do they have vocabulary in their language that's maybe not just like our street vocabulary, but vocabulary that they might not use in everyday conversation, right? That's the oral piece. But the piece that I'm going to talk about is not so much oral. It's actually an in-depth look at words. So we're looking at prefixes and suffixes. We're looking at root and base words. So for example, I'm going to give you an example of a base and a root word in case you don't know what that is. A base word is something that can usually be read on its own. So it can stand alone, right? So like if I have the word legal, that's a base word. It's its word on the own, on its own. I can add a um, suffix like 
eyes. So legal eyes. Now that means something new. And then I can add or I can add a um, prefix at the beginning like ill and illegal. Now that changes the word completely, right? So that would be an example of a base word. And then you have a root word. Now a root word is usually incomplete on their own. So it wouldn't make sense. For example, I have a root word ject. Okay, ject doesn't really mean anything on its own, but if I was to add re, like a prefix to the beginning, reject, now it means something. Or eject, right? Now that word or that part of the word means something. So understanding that we can change words' meanings based on the base word, the root word, based on the prefixes and suffixes that we add, right? For a simple explanation of this, if you add s to the end of a word like bat, it's going to make it mean more than one, right? Understanding that if you add ed, it's going to mean that it happened in the past. So understanding that we can add these suffixes or prefixes and change the meaning is really the biggest piece when we're talking about vocabulary. All right, so let's go into comprehension. So comprehension, the biggest pieces with this are that you need to make sure you're building background knowledge. Not only is comprehension about can I read something and tell you what it was about? Yes, that's important. Can you tell me characters? Can you tell me was there a problem, a solution? Um, what was the setting? What was the main idea? What were the key details? Those are important skills and they need to know how to do that. But if you want to be successful in comprehension, the very first thing you're going to do is building background knowledge because they don't have to be able to read to comprehend a story, right? You could read your child a story and work on comprehension. They can still tell you what it was about. So they don't have to know how to read. That's just a piece of it is that once they are fluent readers, they should be able to comprehend the text. If they aren't yet fluent readers, it's going to be hard for them to comprehend because they're spending so much time decoding those words that they might lose what the actual meaning is because that's what they're working on right so do read alouds if your child is not yet a fluent reader just read to them and ask them questions and so on but biggest pieces building background knowledge they have to know about that topic somewhat before you can move into it so for example let's say i was teaching a child about whales and they live in a state like Kansas and they've never seen the ocean. They've never been to the ocean and they've maybe they've never even seen a whale, right? They have no clue what this is. You have to teach them about what, like maybe the book teaches them about a whale, but there's words that they're going to need to know. They need to know about the ocean. They need to know about the different types of whales. What do they eat? What does it look like? What is that? Like, what is that word? Like if it's saying that the whale eats krill and they're like, krill, I've never heard the word krill. You have to provide that background knowledge in order for them to understand. So you're going back to vocabulary. What is krill? Showing them a picture of a krill, right? Um, whatever it is that you need to do so that they can get the concept of everything about a whale, right? Then you're going to um, ask questions before, during, and after. So for example, like if you are doing it before, you could say, what do you think this book will be about? Why do you think it's about that, right? Looking at the pictures um, in the beginning instead of just reading the words, looking at the cover. During, how was the character feeling? How do you know? Um, and after, what was the story mostly about? Can you tell me some key details? Can you tell them to me in order, right? So asking these questions as you're reading is going to be an important piece for you to know whether or not they are comprehending the text, right? And that is the point of reading. It's to learn something, whether that be the moral of the story 
or whether that be a fact about whales, right? So whatever it is when we're reading, it's to learn. All right, so let's talk about writing. So I had talked about spelling with the patterns, but when we talk about writing, usually people think about writing paragraphs, writing sentences. So this is where what I was talking about with sentence segmentation and phonological awareness is super important. In the beginning, when I would have students write sentences, first of all, I would have them build it first. So first they're going to build the sentences um, and I would just give them like a sentence and then I would cut it apart and then they'd have to put it back together. That's just getting them to understand like what a sentence needs, right? Um, And obviously there's the part of that like sentence needs an uppercase. It needs spaces between your words. Your words need to be spelt correctly. You need to have a verb and a noun or whatever, right? So there's a lot that goes into that and I'm not going to go into detail on that. Um, But in the beginning when they're writing sentences on their own, they need to be able to count their words. And I always have them draw lines for each of their words because they will miss words if you don't do this. Some kids sometimes will just catch on, but for the most part, if you draw lines for each of their words, night and day difference on them being able to do that because the process of writing is complex. They have to say the word, they have to segment the sounds, they have to identify the letters that make those sounds and write them down. That is really complex. So doing that will simplify that process. Um, And there are different phases that kids go through in in writing. Um, And so, you know, they usually start off with scribbles and then they might start like writing like random strings of letters and then maybe um, that maybe, well, not, sorry, not random strings, but like mock letters. They don't quite look like letters. So they just kind of look like a symbol that would maybe represent it. Then they go into string of letters that doesn't make any sense, but to them it does. So if your child is scribbling, be like, oh, what did you write? Tell me about it they'll tell you about it. They know that it represents something, right? And then you go into where they start to kind of spell phonetically. So now maybe they're spelling cat as K-A-T. So if your child is at that point where they are starting to write phonetically, just like read their stuff and be super excited that they are writing. They're now understanding that these letters have sounds. I can put those sounds together to make a word. Might not be spelled correctly and that's okay. That's the, that's the, um, that's where they're at, right? The only rule of thumb that I would give, which is when we go to um, later on in their abilities, they will start to represent spelling patterns with things they've learned. So if I've taught EA and it says E or EE and it says E, they might try to use one or the other and they might not know exactly which one to use, which is normal in the beginning because they haven't been exposed to the pattern enough. And to be frank with you, some of our patterns, there's not a said rule. Like, there is for some of them. So like EE and EA is kind of an example, right? You can see it at the end. You can see it in the middle. You could see it at the beginning, except for EE, EE doesn't really show up at the beginning, but you see what I'm saying. So if they're not spelling it correctly, that's okay if that's not your objective. If your objective is that we're writing with EA words and they're not writing with EA words, then correct them. If they're doing a free write and they're just writing you sentences and they used EE or EA and you're like, oh my goodness, look at that. You remembered that that says E. That's awesome because you don't want them to write STEAM as S-T-E-M, right? That's a STEM and they should know that if they understand closed syllables. So like I said, depends on the objective, okay? And then they'll go on and obviously start to understand the 
patterns and the rules within our language and they will start to spell things correctly. Um, and each age is totally different. So like the scribbles and the mock letters and things like that, ages two to five, from five to seven, that's when they're using some phonetic spellings, like they might spell cat, K-A-T. Then you have like ages six to eight, this is where they're going to start using patterns that they've learned like steam, but it might not be spelled correctly. They might use E-E in steam instead of E-A. Um, and then from eight and beyond, this is when they're going to start actually using patterns correctly and so on as long as you've taught them the patterns. All right, so researchers currently propose that there are three kinds of developmental reading difficulties. There's a phonological deficit, which is the inability to hear the sounds in our actual oral language. Then you have um, processing speed or orthographic mapping deficit, which is the, um, it's going to affect the speed and accuracy of the printed word recognition. And then you have comprehension deficit. So this usually coincides with the first two problems. So if they have a phonological deficit and they have an orthographic mapping or processing speed deficit, they will then not be able to comprehend very well. Um, and this is usually found in kids with a social linguistic disability, a vocabulary weakness, or just generalized language learning disorders and learning difficulties. The most common developmental reading disorders that we hear about are dyslexia, right? And there is a bunch of stuff that you can look at with dyslexia. And let me tell you, dyslexia is not just that they are flipping letters. That is actually like so far from what dyslexia really is. It's not just the flipping of letters because letter reversals are actually normal <laughs> because we have something called mirror generalization in our brains. And that just means that when we see a dog, it's going to be a dog no matter which way we see it. And that goes for our symbols as well, like B's and D's and P's and Q's. They look the same to a kid. It just is flipped, right? It's just in a different direction, but it's still the same. So there are ways that you can actually fix that. And I actually have a blog post about it. So if you wanted to go to my website and check that out, you can. All right, but there are signs of dyslexia. And like I said, it has a lot more to do or a lot less to do with flipping things and a lot more to do with the ability to actually process phonological um, it's like a phonological deficit and vocabulary deficit. So usually they're later, to, they are kids that are late to talk. They're slow to learn new words. They mix up pronunciations of words. Like they might say aminal instead of animal, even after lots of corrections, they still do it. Um, they might have trouble with sounds like TH, the R sound, the L sound, the W sound, even after correction. Um, they may not enjoy um, looking at or following print in books when read aloud to. Um, they might have trouble remembering letter names and recalling them quickly, struggles to recall the sounds that the letters represent, struggles to break simple words such as zoo or cheese into separate speech sounds, um, trouble recognizing common words. So like maybe they just still can't recognize their own name or other people's names. Um, and they do not uh, spell the sounds of words in a plausible way so that we can recognize it. So when you're looking at phonetic spelling, you can usually like sound out the sounds yourself and know what they're writing, whereas they might just still be in that like random string of letters where it makes no sense at all. Um, and then um, they move on to like unable to recognize important and common words in sight or instantly without having to um, laboriously sound them out. So it just takes them a lot of effort to try to sound these words out. 
um, falters during the sound out process and recalls the wrong sounds for the letters and letter patterns. Um, they're a very poor speller with speech sounds omitted. So they get rid of a lot of the sounds within words. And so they're not spelling correctly again, like I had said, um, or they're using wrong letters for sounds and they just have very poor recall. Like they just cannot remember them. Um, or they read too slowly and lack appropriate expression. Um, and so this is usually like they're going to read very monotone if they are doing it and it's very slow, loses the gist or meaning of the passage when reading, um, or they're very inaccurate when they're reading and they guess at unknown words on the basis of pictures or story theme, which honestly kids do this. They will guess. That's just something they kind of go through as in a phase is what I've seen, um, has inordinate difficulty with writing or completing written work. So there, if you are thinking like, oh, my child has dyslexia. Like I am not here to diagnose your child. I just want to make you aware of the fact that like dyslexia is way more than flipping your letters. So if you ever are concerned, just Google, like how do I get my child um, or how do I even get them tested for dyslexia, right? If you think that there's an, a language processing disorder or dyslexia or things like that, I urge you to just Google how to get that looked at and take action because the earlier we can do something, the better off we are. And this is where I'm going to get to is that if there is a problem and we fix it very, very early, we can do a lot with that. So there was a study done where they took an eight-year-old child that was in the ninth percentile, which is super, super low, before remediation, and they scanned the brain to look at the activity that was happening. Okay. And there was not, like I had said in the brain, where we can actually look at the parts of our brain and what parts need to light up when we're doing specific things like reading and writing. And there was not a lot happening. After two months of intense intervention on phonemic awareness, remember phonemic awareness was like segmenting the individual sounds, phonic decoding. So this is where we're showing spelling patterns. We're segmenting the sounds that represent those spelling patterns, blending them back together to read them and word recognition. So again, like there are irregular spellings in our language. This is usually what we deem as high frequency words because we have to teach them a little. We're still mapping the sounds, mapping the letters that correspond, but they do kind of have to memorize them because they have irregular spellings. Um, so looking at word recognition during reading and the student made a gain in both word recognition and decoding, and they actually improved to the 37th percentile. So they went from the 9th to the 37th. So this stuff works, guys. Like doing or taking a systematic approach works. Science says it and I've done it. I did it for a couple of years in my classroom where I was using best practices and the growth that I saw was outrageous. This works, you guys. So if you are not using best practices right now, please just stop for the sake of anything that is good. Just stop. Don't have your kid memorize words. Use a systematic and explicit path and they will succeed. They will. Now, there are kids that will continually struggle, but we can help them to progress a lot faster and to get better. So if you like this podcast, please, please follow my podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe, give it a like, or don't give it a like, but at least let me know why you didn't like this podcast. And 
Like I said, I do have a course. So if you want more information on this, go check it out. I have a bunch of resources on my website that are based around the science of reading. It's resources I've used in my classroom. So I know that students are engaged with it and I know that they are actually helpful in teaching your child to read and write. And as always, I hope you have continued success and that you continue learning and getting better. We'll see you next time.